so yeah, so academically, there's the most debate about dating Joel when, um, because there's no reference to any kings, which is always the easiest way to, you know, date a prophet is, oh, they mentioned King Hezekiah or Ahaz, so like, we can date it to the reign of that king. Um, and that would, re if there's no reference to kings, that's, a lot of scholars put that post-exilic, after the exile, after the kings were gone, and there were no more kings in Judah. It mentions Jerusalem, Judah, and the temple, so it's probably not coming from the northern kingdom, um, definitely coming from the south. And the, the key thing, why I think this was probably written in the 4th century after the exile, was there's lots of citations from other prophets. There's, as we'll look in the end, there's references to Zephaniah, um, Micah and Isaiah, um, lots of different prophets that Joel was kind of citing and um, playing around with. And so I, I think based on the you know, 30 minutes of research I did reading the different viewpoints is it would probably be contemporaries with Ezra and Nehemiah um, sometime in the 4th century. And this would make it one of the latest prophets. And it's during this time with the Persian Empire as kind of the dominating hegemonic force around and Judah's just this little bitty um, province, I guess, of the broader Persian Empire. Do you know if the, if the Jews put it at a different time versus Christian, Christian canonical? Um, so, s some of what I saw put it in the time of... I think it was Ahaz? They put it like really early in the 9th century. And so it's either like one of the first or one of the last. Um, the biggest difference I saw between Christian and Jewish treatment of the text is the way it's broken in the chapters. Is the Jews actually break it into four chapters, have a very, very little third chapter, and then what we consider the third chapter, they consider the fourth chapter. Um, but as far as dating and whatnot, I didn't see much of a difference. So, kind of the structure, there's these three main parts. First, you have the lament in the first chapter and a half. Um, it's very, very focused on agriculture and kind of agrarian life. Uh, focused on the farmers and supply of agriculture offerings for the temple. Then you have kind of this national call to lament. Um, gather the ministers, gather the priests, gather the people, and let's lament because of this. And then in the second chapter, it kind of shifts to more apocalyptic language, where it's talking about the locust and the drought before. It then shifts to this, kind of the locusts become this army, this crusading army that's marching on the walls with fire, and it's much more apocalyptic in language. And then the second chapter ends with, again, another national call to repentance, um, but then halfway through the second chapter, you see this switch. And so God, you know, banishes the locusts and the army that's marching on them and restores the agricultural productivity of the land. Um, and we'll, we'll spend some time looking at this, this future prophetic gifts to all of God's people. Um, and then finally it ends in chapter 3 with the coming judgment on Judah's enemies, the Philistines, the Edomites, the Egyptians... And then kind of this, um, again, another passage about the restoration of the land and of Judah. So we'll get into this a little bit more.
Um, so in the first, whoops, the first bit of the chapters, um, it's all in past tense. And so this is referring to a past day of the Lord, something that has just happened, right? The locusts that are coming, it's in the past. Um, Joel, in Hebrew, means Jehovah is God. He's son of Petuel, which means vision of God. Um, here we can see a nice icon of him. Um, and so the chapter, or the, the book, starts out with the word of the Lord that came to Joel. And so he says, hear this, O elders. So you can kind of see this book is kind of um, directed towards the elders of Israel, kind of the um, those in leadership positions. And so as he's saying this, he's has this passage where he's like, has anything ever like this happened in your generation, your parents' generation, your grandparents' generation? Will anything like this happen in your son's lives or your grandchildren's lives? And so it's this very like cataclysmic event. Um, it's something that is not the norm, is not just, oh, you know, every now and then we get some locuses, but this is something very traumatic, very out of the ordinary. Uh, I spend some time talking about the locusts coming, the land mourns, and at the end of this um, section calls for the ministers and the priests. So, you know, again, last week we kind of talked about the tension between the prophets and kind of the religious institutions, right? The priests, the elders, those in the temple, and the prophets generally come from outside of that and kind of critiquing the, the institutionalized religious power. And so he's calling them, saying, hey, y'all need to repent. Y'all need to do something, because this is, you know, coming from God. And so let's spend some time with the locust. In verse 4, it says, What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. And so there's... English translations of four very different Hebrew words. Um, so like us trying to understand what these mean. Um, some say these are different kinds of pests. So maybe the creeping work locust refers to a type of worm that would get in your crops and eat things. Um, the stripping locust, you know, or it could be the larval stages of locust, that, you know, from caterpillar to juvenile to adult locust is what these words refer to. Um, but what you see in what Joel is saying is there is nothing left. Total devastation, right? The first wave came through and ate half of it, and then the next wave came through and ate more of it, and then the third wave, and then finally the fourth wave, and there's just nothing left. Just total devastation. Um, and if you are a Jew in the 4th century, or whenever this was written, you hear this, you're immediately thinking back to the plagues of Egypt, right? Anytime you think of a plague of locusts, something that God sent to free his people, now the Israelites themselves are being victims of this horrible plague. Um, and so there's some debate whether Joel was referring to a literal plague of locusts that happened during his time, or if this is a broader kind of metaphorical analogy for the intersecting um, problems faced, you know, different. And so I, I tend to think it's both, um, that there was a plague of locusts that's referenced in chapter 1, 
But then in chapter 2, you see Joel kind of expand this metaphorically to refer to other problems that the people are facing during this time. So then it calls for lament, cry out to the Lord, for the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. So it talks about barns and storehouses being torn down, livestock wandering aimlessly, Fire has devoured the pasture and dried up the brook. So again, just this very vivid kind of apocalyptic imagery of just the total devastation of the land. Um, there, there's a, I don't know if there's any history buffs in here. There's a really great podcast I love called Fall of Civilization Pod. And they just look, he does a great job editing it and doing his research. Looking at these different great civilizations and what was it like when they collapsed. And something interesting you hear in a lot of the primary sources is these cities, no people in them, and just animals walking around. Which makes sense if you think about it. You know, I don't know if any of y'all watched like The Walking Dead back when that was really popular, but you know, it's that's that's what it looks like when a civilization collapses, is all the people move, leave, and then their livestock just wandering aimlessly through the streets. So you kind of see the same language. Um, here. And then in chapter 2 you have this apocalyptic shift um, where I think it becomes a little more metaphorical instead of literal. And so now it shifts from the past tense talking about a previous day of the Lord to a new day of the Lord that is coming. Um, In this day there will be darkness, the sun and moon no longer shine. Throughout this book it talks about darkness several times. And so you see, um, again, referencing back to the plagues. When Was it the ninth plague where it was total darkness? Um, this fire sweeps through the land. Fire, locusts, and the, the army are kind of used interchangeably, it seems like, at this point. Joel is really um, using lots of metaphors and analogies to compare these things. And it says the land was like the Garden of Eden before... And then the fires rush through and total desolation afterwards. He then begins to kind of talk about the locusts as war horses and chariots. They're marching in ranks towards the city wall. They're overpowering the city wall. Um, this is a depiction of the Assyrian army, um, which is around a similar time. And then in verse 11, it says, this is the Lord's army. So it's this almost like big reveal, like, wait a minute, I thought this was the bad guys. I thought these were the locusts. This is the Lord's army. And so that's, you know, has some interesting theological implications, right? And again, in this passage, it's a shift to much more apocalyptic language that's going on here. But then we have our big shift halfway through this chapter. Um, and the final, this is the first time that the Lord speaks. So before it's Joel speaking, you know, the Lord speaking through Joel. Now it's the Lord speaking. Um, and says, Return to me with fasting and weeping and mourning. For, for the Lord is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love and kindness. Which is a direct quote from Exodus 34. Um, and so throwing back to that, saying, hey, if you return to me and repent for what you've done, then, you know, things are going to be all right. Um, It says, gather the people. 
Um, and it lists all the people to gather, the elders, the priests, the children, nursing infants, it says, um, you know, brides and the bridegrooms. Everyone, no matter what you're doing, come. And so it's interesting and in that everyone, the whole people, are called to, called to repent, right? But nursing infants didn't have anything to do with this. It's not like they were sinning and worshiping false gods and angering God with their... But to the children and the infants are somehow collectively responsible for this. So I think this has some interesting, um, again, connotations when we think of like broader national sins versus individual sins. And, um, you know, a lot of folks wash their hands and say, that wasn't me. Uh, but if your people did that, you have some kind of responsibility. At least that's my understanding of Joel calling the nursing infants to repent as well. Even though they're innocent, um, on the individual scale, collectively, they bear some kind of responsibility. And then we have this restoration of the land. So it says, the Lord will be zealous for his land and have pity on his people, which is really interesting that the Lord really takes ownership and is zealous for the land. Um, I know we often think, you know, yeah, God loves God's children, and we're children of God. Um, and we kind of detach ourselves from the land and from creation. Um, but Joel is saying, Joel says that first. <laughs> Joel says, first, the Lord is zealous for his land. And then he's going to have pity on his people. So... God says that God will remove the northern army from the land, um, which refers to this locust-slash-chariot-army kind of fire combo metaphor Joel's playing with, and cast them into the sea. Um, and it says, do not fear several times, which is a staple of prophetic literature. Um, it states that the pastures will be restored, the trees will be restored, the fruit trees, the fig trees, the grapevines, the olive trees, everything will be restored, and the vats will overflow with wine and oil. So not only are we like restoring, we're going above and beyond, where you're having this surplus, this overflowing of... Um, wine and oil, which are, you know, like two of the most important staples if you're going to survive in the ancient Near East. And this, this is a really powerful verse. I think this is like verse 23, verse 24, I should have put it. But the Lord says, I will make up the years that the locust has eaten. And so it kind of reminds me of the book of Job, right, where after everything that happens... Job has an abundance, even more than before. And you can see this kind of this language with the vats overflowing, right? That um, this devastation, this destruction that they face through these plagues of locusts, invading armies, fires, the Lord will more than make up for them. Um, which is really encouraging. <laughs> And so this may be one of the passages that y'all are most familiar with, is 28 through 30, verse 28 through 32, because Peter, in his Pentecost sermon in Acts 2, directly quotes this. And he's up there and says, as it said in the book of Joel, um, that everyone will prophesy. So here you see the picture of the day of Pentecost, right? Sons, daughters, old men, young men, male and female slaves, everyone 
will have God's Spirit poured out on all mankind. And so you see kind of this, like, democratizing move going on, right? Where Joel is talking to the ministers and the priests and the elders. And is saying, but one day, a new day of the Lord is coming where God will pour out His Spirit on all mankind. Not just those who are like entrust the Levites, the high priest, but everyone. Um, and so we see this, you know, come to fruition on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes down, and everyone, um, no matter their social class or their education or their gender or race, receive this gift. And so the new day of the Lord that's coming, there's still darkness and fire, which are both mentioned before, but it ends in a hopeful note. and says, but whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. So there's now hope that, yes, something bad will happen in this next day of the Lord. The moon will go out, the fires will rage, but um, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. Oh, I'm making great time. Awesome. Um, just a couple more slides, and then we'll split up into discussion questions. So you all get to meet folks and chat. Um, so, in chapter 3, it talks about all nations being judged. Um, so again, you see this restoration. God says, I will restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. And then, I will gather all the nations. So again, this parallelism you see multiple times throughout this book. Originally, you're gathering the elders in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, gathering everyone from the nursing infants to the oldest old person, right? And now God is gathering all the nations um, and talks about bringing them into the valley of Jehoshaphat, which Jehoshaphat means Jehovah has judged. So kind of this idea of bringing all the nations into this valley um, and there the Lord will judge them. Um, and so it mentions uh, the... The Egyptians, the Edomites, the Philistines, all these kind of historic enemies um, of Joel, which is interesting because if this is dated to the 4th century, those folks aren't really around anymore. The Persians conquered the Egyptians, the Philistines and Edomites disappeared a long time ago. So it's kind of referring to these historic people who hundreds of years ago <coughs> oppressed the Israelites. Um, and, but the Lord is still judging them for that. There's this interesting kind of parallelism for the slave trade, um, where the Lord talks about the Jewish people, their children, their sons and daughters being taken and sold to the Greeks to the north um, by the different you know empires who captured them. And the Lord says, likewise, you know, your children will be sold to the Sabaeans who are like, if you think of modern-day Yemen, like on the bottom of the Arabian Peninsula, all the way down to the south. And so, you know, the Greeks up in the north and the Sabaeans down in the south, that's where the Queen of Sheba from Solomon, right, um, down there near Ethiopia, kind of. It's kind of like the two ends of the world, right? So again, you see kind of some, some tit-for-tat. There's a really interesting reversal um, where Joel quotes Micah and... Isaiah, you know, beating your swords into plowshares, your spears into pruning hooks, reverses it and says, beat your plowshares into swords, your, prun your, your pruning hooks into spears. And he's saying that to all of these nations. 
nations um, who are about to enter judgment. So it's let the nations prepare for war. And so that's just really interesting that Joel, we traditionally think of that as a very pacifist kind of, yeah, beat swords in the plowshares, you know. Uh, I, I love that verse. But it's interesting how Joel is reversing that um, as these nations kind of enter this valley of judgment. And then a little bit more parallelism talks about the harvest being ripe, the wine press being full, the vats overflowing like before. But it's not literal, it's being used metaphorically to refer to the wickedness of these nations. That, you know, they are so wicked it is overflowing. And so they are going to meet their judgment in this valley. Um, I just, I love all the, the parallels and you just, it's so, um, these, these prophetic books are written so poetically. Um, it makes me wish I knew like the ancient Hebrew and could hear, you know, the alliteration and the rhyming and those kind of things that we miss when we switch it to English. I have a question. Mm-hmm. So, it seems like, you know, the first chapter is... <coughs> past and things are not good. In the second chapter it sounds like the switch the blessings are coming, God is mm-hmm. and then the third chapter sounds like to me it's confusing because it, it sounds like things are getting there's some good things but then it sounds like there's all this war that's going mm-hmm. so I don't really quite understand yeah. that. So yeah the first chapter and a half is very bad, right? Things are going on very bad, but there's that switch halfway through the second chapter. If you repent, then you will be able to, um, you know, there will be this restoration of the land and everything will be good. And so in the third chapter, it's kind of like, oh, but hold up, you know, the folks who hurt you, I'm not going to let them get away with that. And so in the first part of chapter 3, you have this judgment of Israel's enemies. And then in the second part, you again have this repetition of the blessing um, for Israel. And so it's, it's interesting um, in how you know, we think about it. Yes, the land is restored, but those who have oppressed and enslaved and hurt the people still have to face responsibility for that. And so if you're, you know, a Jew reading this, you're like, yeah, let's go! You know, finally they'll get what's coming to them. Um, you have a question? No, well, well it just, it kind of reminds me, like the day of the Lord is such a popular mm-hmm. theme in the Bible. And like in Revelation, when like they're talking about the day of the Lord, um, like there's a part in Revelation where they release the locusts and they go and mm-hmm. they kind of pester people around the earth, and the faithful like have still have to endure like the judgment that is impending on like the whole world, mm-hmm. and so it reminds me of like the promise that like you know and it's kind of like Jesus t- like you know we look forward to a promise and yet like. That doesn't mean like our part is done and like what if what the mm-hmm. grand day of the Lord that is coming or will yeah. come. I don't know. Yep. No, that's a really good point. Um so the final blessing that was it. Okay. 
Let's hurry up soon so we have time to chat. Um, it talks about the mountains drift, dripping sweet wine, the hills flow with milk. And it says that a spring will go forth from the house of the Lord. And so we see this reflected again in Revelation 22. When it talks about the new Jerusalem that comes down, and here you can see a depiction of it, and the stream that's going through the middle of the city. And that it's not coming from the temple, because there is no temple, because the Lord is there. And the Lord is the Lord's temple. Like, you know, you don't need a temple if you're with where the Lord is. And so the, um, the stream is flowing through that city. Um, and so you see a similar kind of um, utopian vision um, of this, you know, this mountains dripping with wine, hills with milk, and this spring that's going out and like watering all of Judea. And then it ends with saying, the land of those who shed innocent blood will become a desolate wilderness. So again, like I was saying, you know, those who have oppressed um, the Israelites will now face um, judgment for that. So this is, I just love this image. This shows um, all the different um, references and citations in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Um, And the colors, the purple is like how close the chapters are together and yellow and green is the farthest. So again, you can see just how integrated um, this book is. It's not just, you know, a bunch of different isolated books, but they are so intertwined with one another. So we can kind of look at some of the relationship. This image I found... Um, is more thinking thematically, right? Things like the Day of the Lord, these different things, how do they relate to different books in the Bible that you find throughout the three chapters of um, Joel versus this is more like direct quotation. So that's why there's so many over here and only a few right here. But you can see like I was saying about Joel kind of having read these other prophets and being able to draw um, from them and reference them as he um, wrote his stuff. And then you see in the New Testament, other folks like Peter directly pulling from him in Acts chapter 2. Here we have, you know, the the swords and the plowshares, the inversion of that from Isaiah and Micah. And so just kind of all throughout the Bible, again, you see this integration. All right. So, what time do these classes usually get out? Is it 10.50, somewhere in that range. Okay, cool. Um, so, yeah, I have two sets. We might not get through both of them. But let's spend 10 minutes. We'll have a group here, group there. So, like, four groups, if y'all just want to kind of switch your chairs around. Um and kind of read these, I guess, 11 verses, 1 through 10, or 10 through 20, and then 2 through 8, and discuss these questions for a little bit. All right. Well, do, do y'all want... You're going to keep going? <laughs> Um, do, does each group want to just share one thing that someone said, just someone that really like stood out to you or you thought was very insightful? 
Does this group have something? We talked about like why does God restore the land, um, and it's kind of because it will when Jesus returns, the land will be heaven and where we will be, you know, and when all evil is done with, and just how um, our role in maintaining creation now. It's it's easy to not be aware of how you contribute to destroying things about God's land um, by what you eat and buy and wear and all that, but um, that we are still called to. And like she said, it, that was our first call in Genesis was to like to mm-hmm. the land and yeah. how we you kind of ignore that sometimes, but how it's still an important part of living on Earth. Group in the back, do y'all have something? <laughs> there, were, there were no truth bombs back there. What about y'all? I mean, we, we kind of went down a rabbit hole, but... Um, that, that's what I love to see. In, this, in the other slide, we were talking about, like, one that we really got into was... Why does disaster happen? Mm. How does that work? And we start talking about maybe it's an opportunity for us to respond. And it's a test of how are we going to react? How are we going to show Jesus in those times? And, mm-hmm. um, and how that works, you know, in the Old Testament, the New Testament now, of our opportunity to respond, react, and help and step in when, when it's needed versus retreat and isolate. Awesome. <coughs> what about my group, big group up front? Um, we talked about a lot of different things, but we kind of talked about like why, like this idea of like God creating this bad event. Like why, like why would this happen? Like was this a God thing that created the locust? And you know, because it's not that it doesn't say that He did that, but then later it's like, well, you have to repent to make this better, and God will fix this for you. Mm-hmm. And so we just kind of talked about like how does that relate to now, since we're in a global pandemic and it's just really confusing and complicated, and that grief is just yeah. really complicated. And maybe some of this is a result of our own collective actions, mm-hmm. right? It's not that God's causing it, but God is kind of. Okay, if y'all are going to go down that road, go down that road, but I know where that lands. And it's repenting is turning away from that bad behavior, whether it's, you know, fill in the blank. Um, so, yeah, well, thank y'all so much. Um, great discussion. Next week, um, start reading Nahum. It's only three chapters, so, you know, you can get to it. And finally, my co-teachers are going to be here. <laughs> I know, yeah, jo- George and Emily... Um, we're like, oh yeah, no, we won't be able to be there the first two weeks. <laughs> All right, well, if I get in, if I get in deep water, say some, tell them we don't need them. Say, say some heretical <laughs> stuff. Y'all are gonna have to bail me out. But Emily will be here to discuss Nathan. And if you're wondering our order of how we did it, the three of us just drafted them for the weekends we could do it. So it's not chronological. It's not uh, done in the order. It's just randomly done. So see y'all next week. Thank you.